0: And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. My friends, this is Tim Banal of, of America.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 4. As you may have noticed, or maybe not, I'm a little stuffed up this week, so my voice will sound even stranger than usual. But luckily we taped the interview like six weeks ago, so my voice is fine during that. Our guest this week is Adam Davies, author of Extreme Expeditions, Travel Adventures, Stalking the World's Mystery Animals. You'll be hearing me rave about it in the introduction to the official interview. The gist of it is, Adam traveled all over the world, continues to do so, looking for strange and mysterious cryptids outside the mainstream of cryptozoology, sort of the more unique and truly bizarre creatures. I really love the book, and it is sort of a half-and-half thing. It's partially about the creatures themselves, and then the other part is about the expeditions themselves and Adam's adventures. Searching for these animals. So, as someone who has said on previous occasions, I do enjoy the personal aspect of Esoterica. For those folks listening who also enjoy that part of the paranormal world, you're going to get a lot of great info here with Adam Davies talking about what goes into an extreme expedition. In this conversation, we're going to be covering tons of ground, including some of the adventures that are detailed in his book, his travels to the Congo in search of the Mokili Memembe, hunting the Orang Pendak in Sumatra, investigating the Mongolian death worm, and other cryptozoological treks around the world. We'll also delve into the human side of crypto expeditions, talking about what makes a good team, the political roadblocks to international work, how Adam's family feels about his adventures, and of course, much, much more. Plus, on top of all that, we're going to just cover A mishmash of stuff towards the end. We're going to talk about Alien Big Cats, The Seljord Serpent, The American Bigfoot, The Kill No Kill Debate, El Chupacabra, The Summer's Bigfoot Hoax, and tons and tons more. This is a jam-packed edition of BOA Audio, which spans the globe and covers a wealth of cryptozoological topics. For those of you unfamiliar with Adam Davies, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Adam Davies has tracked so-called mysterious creatures all over the globe. His adventures include being shot at in the Congo whilst looking for the Mokile Memembe, the Congo Dinosaur, and being arrested by the Mongolian Army as a spy whilst hunting the fabled Death Worm. Adam sincerely believes that some but not all of these fabled creatures exist, and embarks on field research in order to substantiate this. He has also had some fantastic successes, with scientists confirming his finds as remarkable and astonishing, in the case of both the Sumatran Yeti and Norway's Nessie. Remarkably, to date, Adams' expeditions have been entirely self-funded. He has been featured on or been the presenter of some very enjoyable documentaries, including Russian Bigfoot on the National Geographic Channel, along with The Real Hobbit and China's Wild Man on the History Channel's Monster Quest series. Adam would love to pursue his passion full-time, but at present works as a civil servant in Manchester, England. At present, Adam does not have a website, but if you want to find out more about him, you can simply go to anomalistbooks.com slash davies.html. Let me spell Davies for you, D-A-V-I-E-S. So, all together now, anomalistbooks.com slash davies.html, or just go to the webpage where you found this interview at BOA. And there'll be a link up to the website that I just shared with you, so you don't have to do all that writing and typing. What's that? You thought we were going to start the interview now? I hate to tell you, folks, but I got a couple things to share for you, good news and bad news. We'll start with the bad news. There is a slight bit of technical difficulty during this interview, finite bit of fuzz, if you will. Having gone over the full recording, I can tell you that only one answer in the whole interview actually is severely marred by the fuzz. The rest of the time, it just pops in every now and again. It's a minor annoyance, I apologize, and it's the only time it's happened here on Season 4 so far amongst the seven or so interviews we've taped, and I don't presume that it'll be happening again. I want to apologize to Adam for that as well. The good news, as an added bonus, at the conclusion of this week's episode, we're going to spice things up just like I promised. We're including my on-site mini-interview with Thunderbird researcher Ken Gerhard from this past October's Mass Monster Mash. I'm not going to dive into the whole preview for that until the end of the program, but stick around at the end of our Adam Davies interview, little bonus mini-interview with Ken Gerhard, talking all about Thunderbirds. Now, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on September 27th, 2008. Adam Davies, talking about extreme expeditions, travel adventures stalking the world's mystery animals, on BOA Audio, Season 4. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Ben All of America Audio. I'm really excited about today's guest, Adam Davies. He is the author of Extreme Expeditions, Travel Adventures, Stalking the World's Mystery Animals. It is an outstanding book. Uh, I read it earlier in the summer and then read it again this past week before we did the interview, and I just really, really enjoyed the book. It is a, a boots-on-the-ground description of some of these expeditions traveling all over the world to mysterious places looking for strange cryptozoological beasts, a lot of uh, creatures that hadn't really come up on my radar before, so I was excited to read about some of these things. I'm sure I'm going to be butchering their names, too, uh, when we get into discussing them. (laughs) But I'm very excited to have them on here. Again, the name of the book, Extreme Expeditions. Adam Davies, welcome to Ben All of America Audio.
1: Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome. I should mention, also, you're coming to us direct from Manchester, England, in the U.K., I guess before we dive into Extreme Expeditions, let's do, you know, the bio, the background. Who is Adam Davies and how did you get interested in the cryptozoological world, if you will?
1: Who I am is um, basically I'm I'm a a sort of civil servant from Manchester. I'm I'm an ordinary guy who's had a real passion for these things for a number of years. And basically what I decided to do was to go out and actually look to see whether they existed or not. So... um, a lot of my expeditions are actually done on a shoestring i put, i mean you know i wear um charity shop clothes i go out there and i do it but it was a real passion for me so no matter what happened i needed to go and do these things so that's my bio and of course i've been all over the world there's there's not many places um recently that i haven't been but most of the places i seem to have been have um have been uh, have been trouble spots that's just the way it's hung
0: yeah, yeah, that's one of the oh, even scarier parts. The book is kind of scary at points because uh, the things like that do happen in the book, where you know you're in places and it's like I'm worried about this guy throughout, <laughs> throughout the book. And then, like I was going to mention, at one point when you're in the Congo, uh, you, after you sort of haggled about the ride with Carlos, this is going so deep that people who haven't read the book yet are going to be like, "What's he talking about?" But you're like, you're like riding in the in the jeep thing, and it, and it was just like a couple sentences, and you were like. Two hours into the ride, something bit me, and and uh, then I went back to sleep. And I kept waiting throughout the book for that to come back, where you'd be like, I woke up, and my arm was like... Had ballooned, but luckily that didn't happen. But that's the kind of scary stuff that, <laughs> that seems to happen on these trips.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a couple of scary, real scary moments. I think probably the singularly most scary moment was was um, the first time I went to the Congo, where um, the civil war had had um, kicked off, and me and Andy were literally back to back as the taxi the taxi broke down. To, to cut a long story short, the taxi broke down and uh, we were surrounded by people who were, who were after us. And we literally stood back to back doing charges while the um, the taxi driver frantically trying to tried to change the tire and all the time he's going mailed, 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 which is obviously shit in French. And I actually said, I can't believe, I actually said at the time, wait till you see the whites of their eyes before, <laughs> before we charged. <laughs> and after, <laughs> it was like, <laughs> and Andy said, do, do you remember actually saying that? I, said, I didn't remember it, but I, I thought, that's the, I must be the only person in the last 200 years who has ever said, wait till you see the whites <laughs> of their eyes, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that that happens in, like, films and stuff, but I actually said it. Me and, um, and, and Winston Churchill or something have said it in the last hundred years anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the book, uh, as I said, it's outstanding. People have to pick it up. It's through anomalous books. And what I really like about the book, too, is there's a lot of great cryptozoology books out there that sort of detail the animals, but what you've done is you've talked about the expeditions, and that's fascinating to me because it really gives you an idea of what you have to do to go and look for these creatures that goes above and beyond just, you know, reciting stories that people have had about seeing the creatures and stuff like that. It gives you a real education into what it takes to go searching for these animals and stuff. I guess sort of give a little thumbnail on on the book so people know what it's about, uh, so when they can go and pick it up, they'll know what they're getting themselves into. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the book was was really – the way I wanted to write it was to write exactly, as you said, about what the expeditions actually entail. What I didn't want to do is write a research book. I mean, people like Lauren Coleman and Carl Schuker Right, much better um, detailed analysis of cryptids than, than um, I could ever do. What I wanted to do was tell you what it feels like um, to actually be in those environments, and, and as you say, what it what it takes. And also, I wanted it to kind of be an inspiration. So, in the sense that you know as I said, I didn't have any money. For example, when I, when we found the um, Arang Pendek in Sumatra, the first photograph I ever had, I'm in a charity shop shirt, you know, I got from Oxfam, my mother's <laughs> saying to me, your mother's saying to me, the first time you've ever been on television and you're in an Oxfam shirt, oh, you look dead scruffy. And I said, like, mum am in the jungle, what do you expect, you know? <laughs> so so it, was, it was kind of what, what I could afford. And, and I wanted people to read it and it to be nice and tight, and it was how I felt, the conversations I had, and 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 to get across the passion that that um, drove me to be in the situations that I was.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really well written and and like a, like exactly what you just said. It really gives you a perspective of what it's like and especially nowadays uh people complain about the, you know those ghost hunter shows where they you know they don't show all the downtime. Hmm. And and this book's like the exact opposite. It shows you a lot of a lot of the the trials and tribulations of these expeditions that that you wouldn't see otherwise, you know, if you saw like if they made a show about this, they'd try and just show you all the cool stuff that happens. You know they would—they wouldn't show you all the problems that come up and stuff like that. So I really—it was inspiring. Although I'm kind of terrified of traveling to these places. I watch a lot of locked up abroad. I don't know if they have
1: that. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, I—I I mean, as you know, I—I um, I, I was um, in Mongolia. I was arrested on suspicion of being a Chinese spy, and 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 it was the coolest thing because I'm—I'm like. Uh, On reflection, is the coolest thing. But you know, (laughs) there I I am in a military base, um, thinking: now I've got to memorise this, the layout of this base, because I've got to try and escape from it. Yeah, and I'm like, and I'm I'm memorising all the things, and then I'm 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 arguing with this like. Colonel, who, who, and and you know, it's all very intense. I farted as a leftist room, and then we get released, and then, and then two weeks later, I'm back in Manchester in my day job. And I thought, hang on a minute, you've just been in an unknown place. Yeah, No where the westerners have been there. You've just been arrested a couple of years a couple of years ago. You were shot at, and there you are back at your day job. And it's very, very strange.
0: Yeah, and that's the other cool part. I got to put you over because you are like an everyman. You're not, you know, you're not really. Uh elitist or anything like that you know what i mean i could see myself sitting down and having a beer with you and and actually like enjoying the time and stuff like that you you uh strike me as just like an everyman so i appreciated that in the, in the book too
1: yeah well, well, well I, I think you know you, you could have a beer with me and we'd have a good time and that's that's the whole process what um what sometimes people can can think about and sometimes the people who get backing to do expeditions. What what really irks me is, uh, as you see in the book, you know, I, I never we never got financial backing. Maybe towards the end when we started to make I started to make documentaries, but um, certainly um, when it started off in Britain, it was always like. Um, tops from public school who got backing, or it was serious scientists who got backing. The idea of of, of, of somebody um, from my sort of background get, getting, getting any sort of funding to do an expedition, it was sort of poo-pooed. So I kind of thought, well, sod you, I'm going anyway.
0: Exactly. Let's talk a little bit about early in the book when you first sort of started getting into this and decided you wanted to go on these expeditions. Hmm. Let's talk about some of the, the situations that you had to deal with as far as, you know, trying to find like-minded people who are interested and then dealing with putting together teams and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I mean – in terms of finding like-minded people, what, what you've got to remember as a starting point, when you start talking about these things, people say, you know, is he a kook? Yeah, is this ever going to happen? And the reality was, no, I always wanted to, 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 to find people who were really interested in it, but who were prepared to take the sort of risks that I was prepared to take. And you know, going back to our pub conversations, everybody's up for it after a few, few beers, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But the reality of the situation is, um, that most people don't have the desire sufficiently to take the risks. So what I wanted to have was to have optimistic people, but also realists. Yeah. I didn't want to find out people with me who, um, I don't know, saw a monster around every corner, do you know what I'm saying? You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, oh yeah, there it is, there it is, and it's like in a tutu doing a dance. Because <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't going to happen, I, the end game, The end game has to be um, verifiable scientific evidence for any of these things. So I wanted people that would help me to do that, and that was what I set about trying to achieve.
0: Yeah, yeah, and another thing that I sort of noticed too was that you got to find people that are in shape and stuff because you talk about in the beginning of the book about uh, one of your buddies there from work, I think, who, who did the survival course with you, and then they were like, dude, you can't bring this guy
1: that's right yeah i mean one of one of the things that um ideally i would like you know before i I take people i normally um if possible you know i 'd always get to know them because um you need to really put in the effort to go and do that and, and 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 do the exercise and do the training you know i'll be there on Sunday morning at the gym, I have a punch bag in 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 my garage, and I kick the crap out of that I go running and i' I try and you know i'm not an athlete and I never would be you know but but uh, but in my spare time, I try and keep myself in as good a shape as I can, so that I can I can do what I need to do. I need to be when I'm leading these expeditions. I need to be as fit as anybody else there, so that they'll respect me, and so that the locals will respect me as well. You know, if they're gonna if they want food, for example, and we're we're starving in the jungle, I need to be there with with the guys who are going to gather it. And and part of the part of that um, earning their respect is showing that you're able to muck in with them. Yeah.
0: Now, I tried to avoid asking anything specific about uh the, some of the characters and the people in the book because there's just so many... Uh, richly detailed characters in the book that you got to pick it up and read it, folks, if you want to really get an idea for some of these people. But there is one guy I wanted to ask you about, and that's Yan. I, I, <laughs> I've been saying Yan. I presume that is how you say that's it.
1: That's exactly right? it, yeah. Awesome, yeah.
0: awesome. Really quite a character in the book. I was almost kind of disappointed when he sort of uh was not around after the first, like, 50 pages because he didn't work with him anymore. But quite a character. Uh Seemed like a bit uh, media-oriented. I couldn't really get a grasp on how you felt about him. Um, I'm sure he was a good help to you when you first sort of started out, but at the same time, he seems sort of like uh it was his way or the highway, especially with the no drinking thing. I mean, let's talk a little bit about Jan, and you can kind of fill in the blanks of what yeah. I'm talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I, I do, I do like him. Um, I like um, he's 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 one of life's eccentrics, Jan. Um, and I like the fact that um it's a big part of his life, cryptozoology. I mean I think it's fair to say we don't always see eye to eye. I mean my my attitude um has always been, look, I, I get people to work very, very hard, for example, you know when we're out, we could be up at five in the morning, and we could be trekking till um, you know late evening. And if people want a drink at the end of that, then that's cool with me. Um, he obviously has a different viewpoint; he doesn't see things the same way as me. But I still go on with him. I spoke to him um, yesterday, uh, and we still chat. And, and although we have our differences. Um, I like the, I like I like his passion. We probably differ in in, in, in our methodology. If it, I think that's fair to say. Definitely, yeah.
0: Folks, got to pick up the book just for Yan, eh, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yan is a
1: very interesting character, and um, he, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad. He, as I say in the book, I'm glad. He, I'm glad he's um, around and doing his stuff, which is very different.
0: Not to uh, belabor the Yan point, but it seemed like he was really media oriented. And and you said in the book, you know, you can kind of understand that point of view. They have a different agenda. Not just yeah, but other people who who you've gone with or worked with that hmm. seem more interested, you know, in getting the publicity for what they're doing than actually the expedition itself. Does that seem to be something that comes up uh, from time to time, or often, or what?
1: Yeah, well, from my all I can say is, is how I feel about these things, and 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 the the media stuff was always a means to an end. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. As you can see in my book, if I thought I, it was never it never drove me. I always decided what I was doing and where I was going. Um, irrespective of what, um, the media said or did. But if I thought it could benefit me and I quite like doing interviews, then I'd do them. But it was never, it was never a driver. It was always an aside. I was, uh, I think, I think it's fair to say myself and certainly Andy when he was on things, we were always quite a purist about it, which was, again, it's the science that matters at the end of the day. Doing press interviews is nice and, 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 and often good fun, but it's not what it's ultimately. The end game is, the end game is getting everything and if possible, seeing the things it's, it's not really about media
0: yeah all right now let's talk a little bit about some of these creatures that you mm-hmm. that you've been searching for uh, on the various expeditions now I accidentally left out the uh, the cell yord serpent, but let's uh-huh. talk about that because uh, that probably people haven't heard about that I'm sure
1: yeah well the, the cell I mean people what what people will know about um, very simply is 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 serpent generally and obviously the most famous alleged one is is, is loch ness and that's the one that um, obviously I went looking for as well, and I didn't find any evidence of that. But um, I did find evidence of the Cellular Serpent, and it, and it remains to this day the only cryptid that I've actually seen. I saw the thing, and importantly, we got um, scientific evidence which backed up my assertion, so I was quite happy to talk about it. Um, as you know, um, the Marine Research Institute in Bergen said, and there's a quote from the book, uh, in the book, I'm astonished to say this is an unknown species, Then you, know, you see, three other people, including references, including the Smithsonian, who cross-referenced what we found. I, I saw it coming out of the water, and, and it was the weirdest thing. It looked just exactly like the 17th, 18th century wood cuttings. It was, it was um, undulating through the water. It even had barbs on its back. It was fantastic. Wow! It, it was like one, you know, it was like one of the biggest rushes of my life. I and mean, I said, you know, I would have jumped on its back and rode it through the water. If I could have got near it, and I would have done. I was Captain Ahab. You know, in that <laughs> moment, in that moment, I was there and I was on it. If I possibly could get to it, it was fantastic. So, I mean, what that tells you is, is that some, obviously, some cryptids are genuine, some are not, but um, I'm sure the Cellular Serpent exists, I'm sure it is, and I will go back again.
0: Awesome. Now, to sort of segue to the Loch Ness thing, mm. a lot of people within the paranormal world, it seems, uh, are kind of on, on board with sort of what you say in the book, too, that it might be an eel of some kind. Yeah. What do you think the what is going on in Loch Ness, and what do you think that, that is?
1: Well, I mean, my point of view is, is, is this. It's, it's very easy to dismiss things. And people can say, oh, things don't exist. Or, or is it an inanimate object? Is it a log? Or is it waves breaking? And it can be all of those things. And, and if you've actually spent any time on a lake, um, wakes in waves can very easily be mistaken for creatures coming out of the water. Um, but, I mean, I saw, I, I saw and I spoke to a number of, um, um, eyewitnesses, and it was clearly an animal in some instances. For example, you can see say, policemen have seen it. I saw a Benedictine monk in an interview who clearly seen an animal coming out of the water. Why would he lie? He wouldn't lie. He's a monk for goodness sake, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so, so the bottom line, he saw an animal. So he could be mistaken, but in, in, certainly, 'm um, speaking to fishermen there, in, in, in foyers, they'd caught, um eels that were, they described as, uh, had the sort of girth similar to a man. So what I think in Loch Ness is that, um it's, it's eels, yeah? I wish it wasn't, you know, I'd rather be uh, wrong than right, but, I've always said that I'll say exactly what I think at any point. And, um, you know, from uh, Loch Ness's point of view, which would they rather say? Welcome to the Loch Ness Monster Centre or welcome to the big grey Eel visitor (laughs) centre? You know, it's not hard, is it, you know? Bring in those Japanese tourists. Cha-ching.
0: Now, for someone who hasn't been over to Loch Ness, what's the scene like there as far as the town and stuff? Are they pretty serious about the – is it pretty, like, commercialised, the Loch Ness Monster nowadays?
1: No, I don't think it's usually commercial. I mean, it's a very beautiful place as a starting point. I, I, it's lovely. And it is very atmospheric. Um, for those people who are th- sort of into the paranormal sort of area, sometimes it can feel like, genuinely creepy. I mean, there's a house, I think, w- was owned by Jimmy Page out there. And uh, he wouldn't stay in it because he said it was haunted and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not really a paranormal researcher, but I, I, but I don't feel it's... it's it's, it's um. Hugely um, commercial. No, I think it's lovely. It's a, it's a lovely place to go. And the locals, I think most of them um, most of them would like to believe it exists, I think, to be fair.
0: And from an American perspective, uh, I've talked about this on the show with uh, other people and stuff. It seems like the Loch Ness Monster was really big in the 80s, um, hmm. but it's kind of not so popular anymore. What do you think that's all about? Uh, have you noticed that on your side of the pond, or, or is it more of a mainstay there?
1: No, I think you're right. I, I, I think that there's not been as many as many alleged sightings recently of the Loch Ness monster, and um, that probably probably worries those people who are, who are at the lake there. All I can say is, when we dropped a hydrophone in the water there, we never found anything. Um, I could hear it. It was so sensitive. I could hear the fish rising, and when I dropped one in Sol it was well. When La, who was the uh, technical expert, dropped one in, in Sol we found something pretty much um, on the first day. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so that kind of tells me um, uh, that, that um, there isn't anything in Loch Ness. I think I would have. I think we would have heard something at least. You know?
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's let's move on to the next mysterious creature that you went searching for, and I'm going to try and. Is it the makole?
1: Right. Let's go for it. Makile. Makile, mmembe mmembe Yeah. All right. I'm saying that after you've had your beers on a Friday night, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> that's, your, that's your dare for next Friday. You've got to say Makile mmembe three times in one go after five beers, yeah?
0: <laughs> I'll give it a shot. <clears throat> Just to sort of give people an idea, it is <clears throat> an alleged dinosaur that's existing in the Congo. <clears throat> and uh, for someone, like I had always sort of written all these stories of dinosaurs still being around, but it sounds like there is some... There's still some remnants of the dinosaur story around. That's the the Makela memembe
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, since I was a since I was a teenager, um, thirteen, fourteen, I was always really fascinated by the Makela Memebe stories. I'd seen Roy Mical, um, uh, on you know the uh, were, the there was an old series called Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious Worlds, which I'd watched when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. and I'd seen him as a, as, as um. Attempting to look for, for a dinosaur in the Congo. Yeah. And from my point of view, what, what, when I, when I was planning doing expeditions, I kind of thought, well, I can never be like a Sir Ronald Fiennes or an Ernest Shackleton or whatever else, you know. If my toe drops off and it's day 56, you know, I'm not going to go on. I'm going to go and get beer, you know. It's never (laughs) going to happen. (laughs) But, but Ray McCall, I saw him setting up a, um, he's setting up a hammock in Central Park and he was falling out of it and he was like, you know for want of a better word bumbling along and, and i thought well shit, sure, i can be like that guy you know i've got i think i've got the balls to do it um i just need to i just need to to get out there and do it so he was an inspiration for me to do it so that was why i went out to the congo um uh, i mean i wanted to to find out if there was any stories i thought it was a, an amazing thing if something actually existed there so um you know and, and the legends um uh uh, I mean, imagine if a dinosaur really did exist. That would just be incredible. So that was why I went out, because I was so driven by, I think, the adventure of the whole thing.
0: Yeah. One thing I did notice that came up a lot in the Congo trips was uh, a lot of the political hassles that you had to get involved with on these on-location expeditions and the bribery that was involved, which I thought was really kind of interesting because you don't really expect that sort of thing. I didn't realize you can't, you can't just go down there and say you're looking for the, the Michele Mbembe. You actually have to deal with a lot of people and and you know do a lot of paperwork and stuff like that and surprisingly give them some stuff, grease some palms, if you will, to to get them to give you permission to hang around in, your, in their country and look for stuff.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, it, it does come as a bit of a culture shock to to, to people say in America or in Britain um, because we're not used to that sort of thing and you know it's kind of a abhorrent to us, but. Um, in in, um, in in certainly in the Congo, there's a culture of, of what's called the petit cadeau, which is a small gift. And when you w- at first you sort of revile from it, it's like, why should I give this guy like you know a few dollars to um, to, to, to to just ask him a question? But that's how they live, you know. Yeah. That guy, to be fair, that guy might not have been paid for a week or even a month, and he's got a family. You're his be- his last best hope of feeding his kids. So um, what I tried to do was was I'd pay people what I I could afford, and I'd tell them, look, you know, I'm not a rich individual. I'm not um, a TV company or whatever else. This is the best I can give you. You either take it or you leave it. And um, they took it, fortunately for me. I thought
0: it was really cool, too, that and not just in the Congo, but in Mongolia when you went there and when you went to Indonesia and stuff – that the natives actually seem to really appreciate the fact that you were taking the time to come down there and look for these creatures and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I I mean one of the one of the best things that I'll have um memory wise is that um the advantage, if you like, of of, of of being not rich was that I spent a lot of time chilling with the locals, for want of a better word, you know? I lived like they live, I ate the sort of food that they ate and we had a good laugh. And because of that, um because I lived like them, and because I had a genuine interest and passion for the things that um, they were interested in too, we got on really well. and made some really good friends, you know, like Bill Gay um, in in Mongolia. I still, I, you know, we, we mail one another. I ask how he is. I send him Christmas presents. I send him some cigars from Britain, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 we we have a respect for one another. And um, what what often. Um, TV crews or researchers can do is coming with sometimes a slightly lofty attitude, um, in other words, our culture is superior to yours we 're going to have a, come with, have a little sniff at how you how, what your values are and then bugger off and um, i didn 't want to do that um, uh, and I made some good friends as a consequence
0: like I said, there are a lot of richly detailed characters in the book, a lot of the natives that, that you spend a lot of time with that sound like great folks
1: yeah, absolutely i mean one of the one of the things in the Congo is um, you know to be a, a good hunter you have to be a good dancer and um, in um in yeah, the Congo, I drunk this, um, it's called Whiskey of the Village. It doesn't taste like whiskey. It tastes like, no, I've never had it, and I've never been this drunk. It tastes like um, I imagine toilet water would taste. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I, I drunk, I drunk um, some of this, and then I had a dance, and I was kind of the best dancer in the village that night, and they, like, respected me for it because, you know, I'd had a go. And, and with the Pygmies, I had a go on the drums, and I was probably the first Westerner to have a go on the drums. And my drum solo went down very well, you know? Um, so I, I love it. Yeah? I'm a lo- I, loved, I love um, chilling with the locals because you learn a lot from them, and um, uh, you, you should respect them, and, and uh, it's, it's right that you do so, and I'm, and I'm proud of it,
0: Tim. It seems that way from the book and everything, and, and uh, you have every right to be because they all seem to love you so much, too, in, in, uh, in these various places you went, so I can tell that, that your personality really uh, shined through to these guys.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I, when I left um, in the Congo, when I left the village, I spent a lot of time with the with the, the notables um, who were who were like their mystics, for want of a better word, and they gave me a load of presents be- um, when when I left, and like they're all waving me off, and, and and they give a big sort of song as I left, and you know, it's incredibly atmospheric. My pirogue, which is my canoe, is pulling away, and like the village is singing to me as I go, man. That's just that's just fantastic. I can't get that anywhere else. Um, you know, I'm walking down the street in Manchester, and nobody sings to me now. <laughs> 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 and if they did, I'd walk the other way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let's stay on the Mokele me, me-, me-, me for a minute. Yeah. So, based on your trips down there and the people that you talk to and stuff, what what are your thoughts on on the veracity of this of the creature, and if you think this is really possible?
1: Yeah, I think it's really possible. I don't think it's a dinosaur. I'd love—I mean, it would be great if it was, but I don't think it's a dinosaur. What I think is is an unknown species, and the closest thing I can think of is a kind of aquatic-based rhinoceros, for want of a better word. Um, To use a simple analogy, um, savanna elephants are very much larger than forest elephants. They kind of dwarf when they go in in in. um, in the forest, and um that area um still vast tracts of it are are pretty unexplored and uh, and in the swamps and that I certainly think it's 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 definitely an animal um, and a lot of descriptions talk about um it having a horn, so I think the closest thing would be would be a rhinoceros i can 't say for sure because we've had no um definitive scientific evidence but if if i was to if I was asked to put my money um on on, a, on one particular animal, that would be it it's out there. Um, but I'm not quite sure what it is.
0: Now I know you've gone down there like four or five times or something like that to check it out. Is that one of the less sought-after creatures? Because I had only really heard about it in passing and peripherally.
1: There's, I mean, one of the one of the great things about cryptozoology and one of the things that and people don't understand is there are still a number of of of, of unknown animals out there. From my own point of view. Um, the biggest buzz for me is actually proving um, that um, an ape-like uh, creature, a hominid, um, you know, a yeti-type creature, actually exists. Because I do believe that in remote pockets of the world, there are still isolated um, species of um, of our early ancestors in, in 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 remote areas, in different places. And that's what I'd really like to prove. Because I think, from a scientific point of view, when we get evidence of those, we could really learn so much about ourselves and, our, and the intrinsic nature of man um, from, from possibly finding some of these. And obviously, in Sumatra, uh, I, I, I found hair evidence of the Orang Pendek. I don't think that's a missing link; I think that's something else. But obviously, I've been to Mongolia to look for, um, and I've been to Russia recently to look for Almasti. And I think those, those—if you ask me, what I'd singularly like to find—it would be it would be a hominid rather than uh, anything else.
0: Okay. Yeah. To sort of segue into the Orang Pendek, you talk about in the book how the habitat, the potential habitat, let's say, uh, is shrinking for the Orang oh, yeah. Pendek, and, and that might be the same case for the Mekwede, um Mamembe. Do you think as these habitats shrink for these mystery creatures, that we'll have a better chance of finding them, or that they might just die out and we, they'll slip through the cracks?
1: They might just stay out and slip through the cracks. I mean, when I was in Mongolia, there were lots of stories about the almas, which is their um, equivalent of a a yeti-like creature. But it became very apparent to me that... um You know, it did have a a range which stretched, say, hundreds of miles. And as time gone on, uh, and as men have moved into these sort of areas, it's been in gradual decline. And if it's anywhere, it's in a tiny pocket now, which is like 50 kilometers squared of a remote mountain range, and it's been put, I could, I could see how it's been pushed back and back and back over the generations as I travel through the country. You know, for example, to give you, what does that mean to people who are listening to the show? Well, to give you an example, there was, there was something called mountain of the Almas, which was, say, 500 kilometers from the epicenter of the activity. Now, they heard about the stories, but no one had seen any, and they kind of dismissed it. But when I got right up close to the area, then I found eyewitnesses, but I found very few, and they were in decline. So you can what I'm really conscious of is um, the sands of time running out, and, and that's why I think it's so important to find these things before they go. I'm not like, um, you know, I'm not advocating um some extreme environmentalist position. That's that's not how I feel. Um I think I believe in sustainable um um e- ecology and that certainly would work in Sumatra, but I am really conscious that once these things are gone they're gone forever.
0: Yeah. The Mongolian death worm. Now mm-hmm. this is one of the more interesting creatures and I had just recently read something by Nick Redfern about this so mm. I had kind of been vaguely familiar when I when I was looking at the book about uh, the Mongolian death worm, but I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard about this. Definitely one of the more bizarre creatures out there that, that people are talking
1: about. Yeah, again, when I'm, when I'm deciding what expeditions I want to do, I have to decide whether I'm going to, spend my own money on going to look for it you know what I mean so yeah. for example I wouldn't go looking for no owl man because I don't believe something like that would exist it can't physiologically exist so I have to want to see. and the, and the thing that really interests me about that was the Mongolian president himself had asked Roy Chapman Andrews who was the model for Indiana Jones to go and investigate it yeah yeah um, uh, so that interested me it's not a, i mean it's not a giant a giant worm it's not like tremors you know what i mean there's no kevin bacon running around like shooting the shit out of it, it, it i mean it, what it is is it, in my opinion is a sort of a spitting cobra maybe a very primitive creature but it, it, it it's out there in the desert the, the Gobi desert's vast yeah and these creatures are very very rare and uh yeah they're out there I mean, I, again, I mean, the, the number of eyewitnesses I um, I saw uh, and spoke to about the about thing th- who gave consistent descriptions, you would not believe. You know, you could go into um, Dalsingad, which is the main town there, and speak to lots of people who'd actually seen them. Oh, wow. You know, so, so, uh, and the area, I mean, that area, that gave Desert, it kind of looks like the surface of Mars in places. It's an incredible habitat. And, um, uh, you know... It, there are definitely there are definitely um some of those out there, but not as I say you 've what you've got to do is strip away the mystique. sometimes you hear stories about creatures, and you think deathworm must be bullshit but but when you say, well, actually, what it is is a cobra that, that spits venom, that sounds a bit more realistic, you know
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly mm. in one of the chapters at the beginning before you set out on your expedition, you say that you sort of went over the lessons you learned from your previous expeditions mm. um, and then and just some of them were like, no, to to have. A unified goal, so not everyone was on. Everyone was on the same page mm. to uh, go after the same thing. Have a team you can trust, that kind of thing. Yes. I guess. Tell us about some of these lessons you've learned from your expeditions, and if someone's going to do their own expedition, you know what what kind of things should they be keeping in mind?
1: Well, the singularly most important thing is that you have um, people you agree objectives, and you agree a structure. So. I I, I like to have people with me as I say who are are optimistic um, and reasonably fit they don't have to be athletic but reasonably fit and who are very determined Um, and also in terms of, of what they do I kind of I kind of like to, to have agreed jobs and a sort of hierarchy in the sense that I normally lead them, not exclusively, but I normally lead them. But people have jobs and roles and, and, they, and, and they play to their strengths. So, um, for example, if somebody's... It's really simple stuff. It's like managing a team in business. So, for example, if somebody's really good at finance, they do the accounts, you know? But they've got to be prepared to do the accounts when they've not slept for two days and, um, and they need to pay people now, you know? So <laughs> yeah. it's a different sort of pressure because ultimately I'm responsible for people's lives you know if you snuff it on one of my expeditions it's me who's got to see your mother <laughs> so <laughs> i want to make sure that that you're up to it exactly. and that's how it is
0: yeah yeah it's a lot of responsibility now as far as uh sort of um how you sort of go about the expeditions? Mm. Um, like I had talked to Lauren Coleman about this, about you know what's the best way to to get the Bigfoot, and he said to use sort of a Diane Fossey method, where you sort of stay in the area for a while and become one with the environment, and then you know the creatures will be more open to you. Obviously, that's not something you can do on a two-week expedition, really. But what what sort of uh, means and methods do you use when you're on an expedition looking for these creatures?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, because of because of the fact that I, I have to work full-time i wish i didn't but (laughs) i wish i could do this all the time i don't have um i don't have the the luxury of that i mean you know like even when i'm going somewhere like the congo it's 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 a month or so and, and so relatively speaking i have to be in and out so um what what i what i try to do is do as much research as i can beforehand speak to credible people and then um and then go out with with really experienced local trackers and learn from them and um I work as hard as I can, I'm always out there, I drive myself to the point of exhaustion. Uh, Lauren's right, I mean, in an ideal world, um, you'd um, immerse yourself in the the jungle and the culture, but um, because of the resources I've had, that's not been practical, so what I've tried to do is is, is learn as much as I can from the trackers, and also take the best equipment that I could afford to do the job, you know?
0: Yeah, what's been the reactions of of some of the people who are featured in the book to the book like Yan and and your buddy there Andy and, and some of the folks who are in the book like I was thinking too about some of these power brokers in the Congo some of them came off a little bit like scary or or uh, what, well, like warlordish? I think when was described as a warlord. How did they? Did, did you get any like negative reaction, or or are people pretty cool with how they were portrayed in the book? Well,
1: people generally are pretty cool with how they're portrayed. Um, um, I, 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 Keith Keith said to me um, Keith's in the book, yeah. Yeah. And, and there's this bit where uh, I remind him. Uh, I mean, I, I went for a beer with him the other night, and he's in Sumatra, and and when the Sahar, who was the lead guide, said Keith, Mister Keith, Mister Keith, he's strong for sleep. He's weak for everything else. Yeah, Because <laughs> <laughs> he was like, not the best person in the jungle. Right? But he was totally cool with that. He said, yeah, that was fair enough. And he, we had a laugh about it. So, oh, yeah, no, been, the, the thing is, Tim, That book is written from my diaries, and it's exactly how it happened. Yeah. Yeah. So all I can do is say that's exactly how I felt and I saw it at the time. And um, if people disagreed with me, then then fair enough. But those are my views, and 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 they're my they're my heartfelt views. The books written, um, the books written from from me, um, and it's just how I felt. Ultimately, it's how I felt, saw, and uh, and and understood things at the time. when I was there, yeah. So it's just like how you perceive things.
0: Mm-hmm. So you're not worried about getting like locked up in the Congo when you get down there, because they're like,
1: oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> "Man, I'm always worried about getting locked up in the in the Congo." Recently, <laughs> recently they sentenced some pigs to to jail. I I understood. You know, you never know what's going on in the Congo. <laughs> yeah, it's scary. It, it's the weirdest place. Um, so uh, so you never know. Um, I, I, I mean. I, I always think about which expeditions I'm going to do next year. But if, if I go, if I go to the Congo again. Um I, I joked that I'd want to have one of those giant hamster balls, and I could just, like, roll it around, and there'd be no shit whatsoever, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but the reality of the situation is I'd bite the bullet, and that's it. Um, you, you never know.
0: Yeah. Now, uh, you did bring up, Keith, I wanted to ask you about that, because uh, I know in, yeah. in one of the expeditions, they had to take him back down to uh, to the, the town or whatever, and it sounded like he was happy, you know, that he was sort of like a little mini-celebrity in the town yeah.
1: there, while
0: he was taken down. What was his reaction to having a be taken off the expedition was he disappointed because you guys came all that way and he couldn't really he couldn't really hang on the on the trip or it just was too rough for him or was he uh, okay with it or you know what was his perspective on that
1: um i think his perspective perspective was you know he needed to leave because he was ill um and that was the reality of the situation so um he was relieved he was out of the jungle and um he was he was he was quite happy um um you know, obviously he, he'd come all that way and he, and he wanted to carry on, but if you're ill, you're ill and you've got to go. Um, we've got a job to do. I'll make sure he's, he's safely cared for, um, which he was, because Debbie was looking after him, Debbie Marta. So, so um, but w- we're there to press on and, and, and do the job. And providing he's cared for, that's that, that's the end of his expedition. But from his point of view, no, he was fine, man. I mean, he was like the biggest celebrity in town. He was like, you know um the the, the 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 equivalent of uh the george clooney of the of, of uh, sungai paneer everyone was like waving at him and he was waving back and he was he was dead happy he was all right you know <laughs> <There> you <laughs> he, was, he was chilled that's
0: good that's good yeah i couldn't tell like really what i it seemed like he liked he was happy with the with the thing but i'm sure he was kind of like a little downtrodden that, that it ended up that way but i yeah, couldn't really tell
1: no he, he, the, the, he's pretty laid back guy so he really i mean he, again he's very positive so he really gets he really get, gets down and when um, when we got back to singapore believe me um that boy can drink and uh, <laughs> He, he was fine, uh, put it like that. We went to Hooters, and uh, I'm not going to carry, carry on anymore because I'm conscious I'm on an interview with you. But um, he made up for it, let's put it like that. There, there you go.
0: Now, is your buddy Andy as into the cryptozoology scene as you are, or is he uh, just sort of like a friend who, who enjoys going on these trips
1: Yeah, I, I don't think he's probably into it as much as I am. I mean, I, I've spent um, thousands of, of, of uh of pounds, dollars, whatever, Mm -hmm. doing this. And I I still do it now. And he's in the Navy at the moment, uh, the British and the Royal Navy. So, I mean, he probably will go on expeditions in the future. But um, Andy and I always wanted to, in an ideal world, what we hoped we'd do was, like, do something like a TV series because we'd kind of of do it all the time. Oh, I mean, I'd love to do it all the time, Tim, you know what I mean? I'd love it as a career. But he was like, he, he said to me, like, Adam, like, I can't afford to do it anymore because, and I need to get on with my life. Um, yeah. So, so, um, and I, I completely understood that. Um, you know, I, I still see Andy. I, mean, I spoke to him um, last night. But um, you know, maybe I, I'll just carry on driving at it because it's my, it's probably my, my, my singular passion in that respect. But um, I respect that he's joined the Royal Navy, and I'm totally cool with that. We're good mates. But I was just
0: so pleased with the guests tonight. I know that you probably think that I don't care. I'm kind of like a doctor. I don't have opinions. Oh, contrary! I sometimes, the guests come out here, it's all I can do to not spit on them. But tonight, those... Oh, come on. Like, you can't tell. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Anyway, that wasn't the case tonight. I loved the
1: guests tonight, and I hope you did, too.
0: You kind of raised a good point, too. Uh, I presume you're, you're kind of a young guy like me. I mean, I'm going to be 30 in January, so... I presume you're you're A fairly young guy I think you said that Actually in the book Because you Went on a trip With one guy Who was like 60 And one guy Who was like 40 And I think you said You were in your 20s Or something like that Or maybe you're 30s
1: Yeah well I'm in my 30s now I mean I'm I'm getting, I'm, I'm conscious of the fact I'm getting older You know um, And But But um, Uh, it's one of those things if if you've got a big age gap between expedition members um, they can want to do different things to relax yeah Yeah. Uh, uh, but I don't really think it's a problem Um, you know maybe um, maybe my uh, my aspirations uh, will change as you, I think you probably change as you get older. You get a bit more reflective. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, but but um, whereas you know maybe when you're in your twenties you're just up for it and that's the way it is. Um, it, you know I'm conscious of the fact that I'm getting older, and um, if I go into nightclubs now, maybe maybe the girls will look away. <laughs> Not <laughs> that they ever looked at me in the first place. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it raises the thing kind of like what you were saying with Andy too, uh, and and like I was saying I'm about your age or so and. It starts out like, uh, from my perspective, maybe you can kind of identify with this. When you're in your 20s and stuff, you can be really gung-ho about this paranormal stuff or esoteric Mm. stuff, but then as you get older, uh, the real world starts creeping in more and more into your life, and you get these responsibilities, and at some point, you have to find the right balance, it seems, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, my balance would be to do this (laughs) full-time, if I could choose it, but the reality of the situation is, even to get the money to go, I've got to work. Um, so um, I, I'm conscious I have, a, I, have a, I have a full-time job and I, I don't do that um, and um, I want you know I do it because I, I, but it, it's always I think probably it's always been a means to an end um, and in terms of will I ever stop doing this no as you know from the book I'll carry on doing it until um, I can't walk
0: <laughs> now that does raise another issue in the book you mentioned that you that you're married and you got a kid and stuff what's your wife think of this and has she ever tried to like be like listen dude stop going to the fucking congo or anything like um,
1: you. <laughs> well you you know um i, th- I think i think i think um i think uh from her point of view uh she i'm heavily insured and uh, she's probably happy now, i joking? <laughs> <laughs> um with 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 um, with i've always said i want to do these things my son is like um God, he's nine and a half now, and he's really into animals, anyway. So maybe I'll take him some places, but probably not the Congo, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll take him to. I'm taking him to places like Sumatra or something, which is beautiful, and the people take care of him. Or oh, Mongolia, where they're, they're very hospitable. um Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, would would um if you're going out with someone, um would would and they said to you, look. Tim, I don't want you to do um, the UFO stuff anymore. Would you stop doing it?
0: It depends on how good looking she was.
1: <laughs> yeah, you see, that's that's the sort of shallow response I like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you stop doing it for a while until you got laid, and then it'd all be back on again.
0: <laughs> yep, yep, on the down low for a while. <laughs> She <laughs> yeah, taught me.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I'd be the, I'm the same, yeah?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, well, it's tough balancing. you got to balance family and real world and, and jobs and stuff with this paranormal thing, and it's tough because some people just don't get it, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, no, some people
1: don't get it, but um, from my point of view, I, I'm doing it anyway, and um, that's just the way it is.
0: Yeah, it's what you got to do, I guess, you know? Now, in, in, uh, in the book, you mentioned that you... Before you really had done a lot of the crypto stuff, traveling and expeditions and stuff, you had traveled like all over the world and you had been to America. Have you thought about coming to America for any expeditions?
1: Yeah, I have. I mean, I was always a little bit wary of of, of the whole Bigfoot um, business because it, it's not it's, – it seems th- – From from my point of view, uh, although I've got loads of American friends, it seems extremely complex the Bigfoot thing. There were there were lots of different views on it. There were lots of different places where it could be seen, and um, there were there were some very different views. Um, But when I was in um, when I was in China in May, I spent some time with Jeff Meldrum. Mm And um, I got a really good feel for, for for the Bigfoot, and it made me enthusiastic actually. So, yeah, um, in terms of cryptids, yeah, I'd like to come looking for Bigfoot at some stage. I haven't planned it yet, but I will come and I will look for it.
0: Awesome, yeah, yeah, because definitely, uh, well, it's quite a scene here in America because it's mm. such a big country and everything, and there's so many. There seem to be different pockets of Bigfoots too, mm. like uh, Pacific Northwest. Then the northeast. Then you got something down in the south. So mm. it's uh, quite a lot of different areas you could explore.
1: That's it. Yeah, I, mean, I need to spend some time um, looking about it and, and so, also seeing who could who could possibly help me. But I, I can tell you now, I'll definitely come look for it. I have to. You got to.
0: It's the it's yeah. the it's the it's the thing. Now, what about the uh, the chupacabra? Have you ever thought about looking into that whole thing?
1: Um, I'm not as keen on that, um, simply because uh, from my point of view, I'm very. A lot of, as far as I understand it, a lot of the sightings have been in the last 50 years or so. Yeah. Uh, and what um, interests me when I research things is, is whether there's been a background for, for you know, that, that goes beyond the modern cultural world. So, for example, goes beyond plastic yellow yetis or TV, you know, uh, and certainly to, to use a, a direct parallel with um, your area um the uh, native americans were seeing um and uh, um, recounting stories of of, of of sasquatch long before um the modern day that interests me yeah as far as i understand it I, you know i must have to be correct but as far as i understand it i don't i think big uh Chup- is a modern phenomenon
0: now what about down in australia in the Yowie and yeah. the yaoi and and some of those creatures that might be down there
1: um of all of them the tasmanian tiger is the most plausible um I have a friend who's um, who lives in Melbourne. Uh, and one of his mates is, is a farmer, and what he's called is a dinky dye Aussie, which is like really sort of hard-nosed. Um, calls a spade a spade. Doesn't believe in anything like that. And he um, he phoned me um, recently and said that he his 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 friend had actually seen a, a Tasmanian tiger um, in, um, in 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 um, his farm near Melbourne. Not on, not in Tasmania himself, but he's seen it. And, and, um, remember that only died out in the 1920s. So I think that definitely exists. The Yowie really interests me, and I think I'll probably have a guy at that again at some point if I can afford it. Um, I don't know how, quite how it would work because, as I understand it, Australia's, um, not had a land bridge with, um, any continents for, for thousands and thousands of years. So the idea of a hominid is difficult, but, <clears throat> Um, does, is there enough evidence for me to want to have a go? Yes, there is.
0: I presume you know about the Yaoi book that that uh, the anomalous put out. that We had that guy on the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's quite a. It's quite an. I guess there's like a mini Yaoi. I forget the name of it off the top oh. of my head. I have to look. Up, I'd have to look it up. But I forget the name of it.
1: I'll definitely go. I mean, uh, I was funny enough. I was talking about the feasibility of doing a Yaoi at some point, very soon.
0: Excellent. Yeah, that would be a cool one to do, I think. Now, I just want to jump back to the Orang Pendex, because uh, I had to look it up a little bit on the Internet to try and wrap my head around what exactly people think it is. It's like an upright walking
1: ape? Yeah, that's it. I mean, Jeremy Holden, who I spent a lot of time with, um, he tends to think that what it is is a a, a variant of the gibbon. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in other words, it's a gibbon that's learned to walk upright. When I spoke to um, Hans Brunner, who did the hair analysis for me, because, remember, we found unknown hair samples, and they were analysed by Hans Brunner. He was the guy who'd done the Dingo Baby case, the film with Meryl Streep, yeah, so you saw about that. And he his evidence had been used in murder trials. And he th- he felt the closest thing to it was an orangutan, but, again, it was a bipedal orangutan. So we're not really sure. What we are sure of, it exists. I don't think it's a missing link, yeah. I don't think we're seeing some sort of evolutionary anomaly. That maybe we'll see with other um, yeti-type creatures, but you know, again, it's—I mean, I've only been um, a few hundred yards from from from. Uh the orang-pandak, I've been that close to it, but I never actually saw it. I, I mean, the guides heard it moving through the jungle, and obviously we got prints, again, which were analysed by um, anthropologists, and again, they said it was from an unknown species. So I've been really damn close to the thing, you know, and I've been there four times, uh, and, and, and again, most of, it, most of the time I've been on my own money and my own time. So I want to find it. I want to find it, Tim, but I'm not sure what it is.
0: Yeah, well, you got to be careful. You don't want to end up like that Jeremy character in the book, who's like obsessed with finding.
1: <laughs> well, you see, Todd, well, that's it. I mean, uh, Jeremy's a really nice guy, but but um, and and, and he would probably disagree with what I'm going to say, but um, I do think that he spent like years being miserable in Sungai Petani because he'd seen it once, and uh, he couldn't recapture that moment, and that was why you know I I never wanted to go back and just do one particular cryptid. I wanted to move on. Partially because I was afraid—I was afraid of myself, of, of, of just just looking for something that I might not ever find.
0: Yeah, exactly. That—that's the—that's uh, the fear of a lot of people in this paranormal scene. That they're chasing after a ghost or something. Uh, not no, not literally, but you know what I mean. Chasing after—yeah, yeah. chasing after a myth or something. Now there's a big sort of uh, longstanding, I guess you could say, debate within uh, cryptozoological circles. The 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 old, you know, um, do you kill it or not if you have the chance? Um, I I presume your take is don't don't kill the mystery beast if you see it.
1: I wouldn't kill it. You know, <laughs> I, I have thought about it, um, in the sense that um would would you would you kill it if you saw it? I mean and sometimes I've had people with me, say for example in the Congo, who've been armed, um simply because either they're hunters or I've had to have people there like soldiers, because that's been a requirement of the government authorities. Mm. But if I saw one, would I shoot it? No, I wouldn't. I let it go. I, I, I want to I want to gather um I want to gather important scientific evidence and I'm aware of habeas corpus show me the body. Yeah, I'm aware of that and I'm aware that, that that some people would um would consider that um, the only definitive proof. But I kind of figure if I if I got a good quality photograph and I got some important things like DNA evidence that would be enough to sponsor um for people to chuck money at it. So in other words to to, to, to get um uh, a lot of um the scientific funding you would need to find it without killing it. And that has to be the aim. I couldn't kill one. It would be wrong, I think. And especially if you're looking for something like a hominid, you may well be be killing an ancestor. Exactly. I mean, it's almost like manslaughter, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's troubling. It's troubling, but it seems to be something that that gets bandied about back and forth. Now, do you bring any means of, like, uh, tranquilizing them? Do you ever try, do you you consider capture as a possibility on these trips?
1: I've never been able to afford that sort of um, resource, the bottom line is, like tranquilizers and things like that. And I think you'd have a problem getting some of that sort of gear in some of the places I've been to anyway, you know, guns, et cetera, things like that. Um, My objective has always been to try and gather um, evidence, as in Tangible DNA evidence, for example, hair samples, and, and also photographic evidence. Um, simply because that's the best I can do. But, 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 um, in terms of moving on from that, if I got that, that's the thing where you get people like teams with helicopters get. Um, anthropologists in with tranquilizers um, set up those sort of traps you'd probably get military officials etc I think you know if you if, if you got enough to tip the balance that sort of resource would come in so it doesn't start with me it probably it doesn't end with me it probably starts with me rather
0: you sort of lay the groundwork that this thing is there and then hopefully you can get more funding to go in and get it
1: that's exactly right that's my aim
0: now I was checking out some of your stuff in addition to the book now what have you been up to this summer I, I thought I heard that you were in Russia or something uh, on a trip
1: yeah, I was in Russia looking for um, the Almasti, which is, the, is 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 the Russian Bigfoot. Um, the, 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 there's a lot of talk about in the Caucasian mountains on the border with Georgia uh, of, of of a um, of an Almasti, um, a, a, a Russian creature um, existing there. And you know, we we went to a few areas. One of the one of the one of the funniest things is we went to this. Um, Building where there'd been a lot of alleged Almasti activity, so it had come down from the mountains. And Gregory, who's the Russian guy who was with me, he said to me, it seems to me you will be looking and doing a night stakeout of the barn tonight. I said, yes Gregory, it seems to me this was the scene of a triple murder and I said right and he said good luck and it was as well like people had died in this been like some sort of family butchery thing and then we're setting up the. so we set up the uh, camera traps and we set up all the night vision stuff uh, around this um, around this place and then I can hear the jackals howling you know as they're coming down from the mountains I thought how creepy is this place (laughs) it's the weirdest place (laughs) it was totally it was totally a weird place Uh, and we found some um, on a joking aside we have found some hair samples um, there, which are going to be analyzed, um, by, um, um Sykes in, in, Oxford and by Todd Dissertal in New York, um, who, who i who's, who's, you know, I like and trust. So, we'll see what comes of them, yeah? Um, I didn't see it, we got, uh, there was Richard Freeman and I, who was with me, we felt that we got, um, pretty close to, to it. We said about one of the nights, I think it was the second night we were there, about three in the morning, um, we heard, um, something run across the balcony it and, I, and, I, and it wasn't and it was so large it actually blocked the starlight from the crack in the door so it had to be over six foot and it jumped over the balcony Richard and I rushed out but it had already buggered off before we, 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 we got a photo Was it an almasty? I don't know. I don't know to him. I can't say for sure, but it certainly damn well sounded like it.
0: Wow. Jeez. That's scary.
1: Mm, Yeah, it was good. It was was a rush.
0: One of the things that I be kind of worried about on one of these trips, too, is uh, like on how I was saying earlier about when you mentioned that you got bit by a bug or whatever, is how Mm -hmm. how prevalent is is disease as a concern when you're
1: on one of these things? I think that's a really good question because the the biggest, the, the little, it's not the big animals that really genuinely often worry me. A couple of times I've been a bit wary of tigers in Sumatra because they're quite um, active around the places I've been and I've been not far away from one before now. But normally, uh, you know, in a bush, and unknown it's there. But, but the um, it's normally um, the little things that, that bother me. For example, as you say, things being bitten. Um, I've seen a lot of dangerous snakes, green mambas, and black mambas have slid past me. Um, and I've had horrible things bite me. I had a toenail drop off. <laughs> uh, and, and, it, and it's particularly little things. For example, um, one of the biggest dangers in the Congo is sleeping sickness, and that's from the bite of a tsetse fly. And the only time I ever saw my hunters panic was when we were on a pirogue on Lake Tele where McKinley-Lambo is, is supposed to live and, te- and a couple of taxi flies landed on us and they went bananas because, you know, a bite from them and, you, and you're and dead. So it's, it's insects I worry about most, not not um, not big animals because you never know when they're going to get you, you know?
0: Yeah, do you, know, do you do a lot of, like, vaccines and stuff before you go to make sure you're kind of cool with some of the other stuff?
1: Yeah, I do. I, I mean, I have I have every vaccine... That, that's possible and I spray myself with um um insect repellent. I, I use some some of the time I use some stuff that the Aborigines um have used as well. Um but at the end of the day none of these things are hundred percent guarantee and you never know what you're gonna get. I've had some I'm not gonna say no right now, but I've had some horrible things as a result of of um of, of uh, being in these places. Uh but um touch wood, I'm I'm all right, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I'd be concerned because, like, you know, I watched a show like Survivor and, you know, they hurt themselves in the jungle and they're filming a TV show or whatever and they got to get taken out of the show because, cause, you know, their foot's infected because they didn't like you know clean it or right or something like that so it's and that's the risk
1: we take i mean there's never been there's never been the resource for me so if i got i mean when i've been hurt in the jungle i've just had to carry on i haven't had a tv crew that can take me out with a camera boy i'd like it yeah <laughs> <laughs> i really would i really would I and mean, that's one of the things i'd like i like to do it full-time and it gives you that security if you've got things like tv crews but when you've got like the equivalent of 10 bucks in your pocket you've just got to get on with it <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and grit your teeth and i have done i remember um, i remember I remember coming back from Christmas one time, and I was, I was absolutely knackered, and I, and I was in the supermarket queue, and I was, like, covered in these, like, cuts and wounds and stuff, and, um, and like, Keith was with me, and he said, you really should go home, dude. You're exhausted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez, yeah. Now, there is one mystery cryptid that's sort of, like, in your backyard, and that's these alien big cats. Have you, have you looked at these at all, and what do you think of that?
1: Yeah, I think they exist. I mean I'm not um I don't spend a lot of time researching them, um, simply because um it's done very well by a lot of good people and, and they live the, the, the prevalence of them tends to be in the southeast of the country, whereas I in the, live in the northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, so I live um, away away from them. But there's been sightings, for example, in Derbyshire, which is not very far away from where I live. Yeah, I mean, as you know, um, the Dangerous Animals Act um, w- w- was introduced in Britain in the 1970s. They're not. In, I don't think they're indigenous to Britain in the sense that they've always been here and. Um, now, um, uh, and we're just discovering them. I think there are animals, for example, pumas that were released in the 70s when when the law was tightened, and they bred and they've been successful. And yeah, I think it's only a matter of time before they're definitively proved. What I think will happen is Mr. and Mrs. Smith will come along one night driving home from their dinner dance, and the, and and uh, they'll hit one in their car.
0: Yeah, that seems to be one of the prevalent. Ideas in, in throughout cryptozoology, especially with Bigfoot too, that that eventually someone's just going to accidentally get
1: one. Yeah, well, I mean, the the thing about Bigfoot is, I mean, a lot of people when they're they're very skeptical about it. But you know, say there's only a few thousand of them in a the country as vast as America in isolated pockets. I mean, how often do you find um, bodies in the in the forest? You know, yeah. again, it'll be a matter of time. I hope it's. I hope it's, you You're very lucky in America that you still have great wildernesses. I'd love to live in America. In Britain, I don't have that. You know, I don't have great wildernesses on my doorstep. I have some national parks, but you know, if I lived there, I'd spend a lot more time. Uh, I'd spend a lot more time in the wilderness because it's special. You, you, uh, you, it's, it's a great thing to have. Never lose it. And with
0: Bigfoot too, there's uh, there's also aside from the kill or don't kill debate, there's sort of that other uh, end of the argument within the Bigfoot community here in America, and I'm sure probably in other parts of. Of the world, and, and I kind of want to extend this question also to some of the other mystery cryptids you looked at, and that's sort of this paranormal versus natural animal debate, where some people seem to think that the Bigfoot, you know, has some kind of paranormal element to it, you know, maybe it's interdimensional or some other random thing like that, or versus the people who say, no, it's just, you know, an animal that we haven't discovered yet. What, what's your take on, on that sort of uh, difference of opinion, I guess, in cryptozoology?
1: I, I'm, I'm with it. it's an animal that, that's not discovered yet. I mean, it has to be. Um, I don't think interdimensional stuff will ever get you anywhere. At uh, the end of the day, if our objective as cryptozoologists is not to dismiss paranormal stuff, yeah, because I, I, I enjoy, um, I enjoy uh, listening to it and reading about it, and I'm not dismissive of it. But uh, So I want to start with that. But the bottom line is, in any cryptozoology thing if you if you're really trying to do some good and you're really trying to preserve the species, what you have to get is is independent scientific evidence that can be reproduced and tested by 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 um, both skeptics and, and positive people alike and in order to do that, you need evidence you need hard evidence and that evidence will inevitably have to be physical evidence so for me, it has to be i have to I have to want... If I want to find something, I have to want to think it's a real physical creature.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because if you're hunting for, like, an interdimensional thing, it's kind well, of Well, how like am I going to find start. it? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: how am I going to find it? I'm not going to go in that big Haldron Collider thing and shoot at a million miles an hour and go and be a, a proton or a neutron, am I? You know, it's not going to happen <laughs> for me, is it? <laughs> so I've got, I've got to want to see it. I've got to hope it's walking so I can try and track the bastard, you know?
0: Exactly, exactly. The good thing about your book, too, is uh, even though you do spend a little bit of time I'm talking about bigfoot-esque creatures uh, mm. a lot of it is uh, other animals that are mm. sort of bizarre and strange and stuff like that and i've always kind of been concerned from a big picture perspective that if they were ever to capture the bigfoot then it would hurt cryptozoology in the long run even though it would sort of validate the field um it would take away such a big dog in in the in the genre that uh you know a lot of people would sort of drop out of cryptozoology what, what do you think of that whole idea
1: I think it would i mean i, I again, I think that 's a good question, but I think it would inspire um cryptozoology because again with you know if you if you prove that one of these cryptids exists, particularly a hominid, yeah, if you prove that and you get that evidence, then that gives validation to all that research so for example, when I was in China that they they really felt that the the Chinese take um to their credit take the the Yeren, their equivalent of the Bigfoot, very seriously and and they have you know credible scientists who are actually, who've actually researched it. Now, if, if you find evidence there, um, of another, um, ape creature in a different part of the world, another hominid in a different part of the world, it will give those, those people backings to go and do their research. So. Don't assume it's disjoint thinking. These things are linked in. And, and, and there's a lot of scientists in the shadows who really want to do this research, but, uh, you know, they're, they're wary of things. And when, and when bullshit comes up like the Georgia gorilla and it's another guy in a suit, everybody's heart sinks yeah. um, because but, but you, you just think, oh, a couple of idiots. But when you get real decent scientific evidence and things like that to push, push the boundary further, that encourages scientists to come out of the shadows and give it validation. And that's what we want. So That's why it's important.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, you raise a good point. Never really thought about that. Where if they mm. get a, if they get a big in America, then it'll open up more big Oh yeah,
1: It'd be great, be great, be great for me. I want it. You know, every time I, I read about the big thing, I'm thinking, come on guys, come on. That's, <laughs> that's where I've got to go. <laughs> I've got, I've got, I've got to join in, haven't I? <laughs>
0: now you did, uh, you did, you did raise the thing about the Georgia big What did you think of that whole mess this summer? And and uh, what was your take on that? Not just uh, what happened, but also how the media. Covered it because I was kind of surprised. I took like screen grabs of CNN, it was like the front page story of CNN. I was like, Well, I never thought I'd see Bigfoot as the front page story on CNN, but it was for a couple days.
1: So, what did you think of it? It really annoyed me, man. I mean, I like a joke as much as the next person, you know. But, but from my point of view, and you you understand this because you've read my book, I've risked my life to do these expeditions. You know, in Russia, I nearly died. Um, in in summer, I've been shot at. Uh, you know, I've I've um, had diseases and all of that sort of stuff. And that's because I really want to prove these things because I sincerely believe in it. And a couple of idiots come along with a. A, a bloody um a bloody suit. stuff it in a fridge, and then that 's what people read about that 's what the general public read about that 's what scares the scientists off it, pushes us back you know and it push things forward so I get very, very pissed off at things like that. I do, yeah. um, because they, they, um, I don't want it to diminish the really good work that, that a lot of people are doing. People like um, Lauren, who's sticking his neck out every day. People like myself. People like Jeff and Patrick. We, we try really hard. We don't need that shit.
0: Exactly. Totally. And that, that was another frustrating aspect of the whole thing because it seemed like all summer before it became a national story, everybody in cryptozoology knew it was bullshit, but somehow the mainstream media just jumped on it anyway, like almost like they'd rather report on the hoax part of it because, you know, to them it's like, haha, look at this, you know, these guys, you know, that wacky Bigfoot field, you know what I mean? It was kind mm. of annoying in that regard too.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They were, I mean... Some media are really positive, but 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 it's easy. This is the easiest thing in the world to uh, snipe at, yeah, because because of the the evidence that you have, it's the easiest thing in the world to to to, to, to take the piss out of. So um, you know, I've tried really hard when I've or when I've dealt with media people and when I've made documentaries for it to be portrayed as positive as it possibly can. You know, you want a, you want a pro and con, you want both sides of things. So um, it's just it's just. It, it encourages lazy journalism, um aside from anything else, rather than a real dig at the truth. So, um if it encourages lazy journalism, again, it's bad, because you want, good press is important, because it, it, again, it's not, it's not the bete noir, it's not the be and all, but it, it can be a positive means to an end.
0: Exactly, totally. Now, you said you've made some documentary films. Now, what kind of documentaries have you made? Are they available in the UK, or are they available, can we get them here in the US, or are they on TV out there? How does it all work?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've made, um, for, for, for National Geographic, I've made um, Russian Bigfoot, and um, um, I also did something for them called Eight Man of Sumatra. Most recently, from, I've done Monster Quest, which was on Sumatra, and also um, China's Wild Man, which was on in America on Sunday night, as, as I understand it. Um, I'd like to do more stuff. I'd like to do more where, I, where possibly I drive it. I think probably I've been a, a part of, of a film, and I'd like to do more out there. And I'd love to do like a TV series. So I've done an answer to your question. I've done four documentaries. I'd like to do more because again it helps me finance my expeditions. And, and obviously, in an ideal world, I'd like to do it full time. But you never know. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, that's the same way I am. I'd like to do it full time. Yeah, man. I hope to...
1: it happens for you. You know.
0: Oh, I appreciate. I appreciate that. Uh, if only the bills would stop coming in, then I'd be all set. <laughs> Folks can uh, so they should keep an eye on Monster Quest because that is on here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, Monster Quest our... on
1: the History Channel. You can you can see stuff there.
0: Awesome, awesome. So, what's next for you? Uh, what what do you have up your sleeve? What, what are you working on in the future?
1: Well, I'm, what I'm working on in the future, I, I've not decided yet because obviously I came back from Russia in July. Um, th- there is a possibility of going to Bhutan. Uh, to look for the yeti, there I'd re- really be interested. In that for Himalayan Kingdom, um, where um, the, the actual the royal family there actually employ a tracker to look for the yeti, and they found evidence of it before, which has been analyzed. So wow. I'd love to do that. Um, uh, there's, a t- there's a possibility I may go back to the Congo again, sell your serpent, and obviously the Bigfoot thing that we've talked about. I've not decided yet. Um, I'll probably decide by Christmas.
0: Now, do you have a website or anything, or is it just a book?
1: Um, not at the moment. I'm looking at getting a website done, uh, being designed at the moment. Right now, I haven't got a website, um, but um, if anybody wanted to contact me or email me, they can email me through Patrick at Anomalous Books, and I'd always respond to, to that. Patrick is really good, and he always forwards stuff on to me so they could do it that way.
0: Excellent, excellent. Yeah, that's how I got in touch with you anyway, so it works mm. out good for me. Now, how can folks pick up a copy of Extreme Expeditions? Of course, they can go to Anomalous Books, the website, but uh, buy Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and stuff like that too?
1: Exactly, yeah. And if they jump... If they tapped in my name, Adam Davis, D-A-V-I-E-S, and Extreme Expeditions, they'd find it, and they can order it that way. I hope they do. I hope they like it like you, mate.
0: Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Um, like I said at the beginning of this interview, this is a must-read book. It's fascinating. I've always been as equally interested in the people in the field as uh, I am in the mysteries, so to read this book was just a godsend because it really gave me so much insight into what these expeditions are like. This book's awesome, folks. you got to pick it up. Extreme Expeditions, Travel Adventures, Stalking the World's Mystery Animals. Um, If you ever really wanted to know what happens on these expeditions, you know, you've seen them on TV and stuff, but usually they're condensed down to, like, 40 minutes, and you don't really see a lot of the stuff behind the scenes that go on. And Adam really provides folks with an amazing look and refreshing look at what goes into one of these expeditions, And, and that's what I really found so fascinating about the book and about this conversation here. So... Thank you so much for coming on the show, Adam. I'm sure we're going to have you back on the program in the not-too-distant future to talk about some of your other expeditions and stuff like that and what you have up your sleeve in the future. And uh, Hopefully, this is the beginning of a continuing friendship with uh, between Adam Davies and Banal of
1: America Audio. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. It's been a real pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. There
0: you have it, folks. That was Adam Davies. Big, big thanks to Adam for coming on the show The book is Extreme Expeditions, Travel Adventures, Stalking the World's Mystery Animals. Available via Anomalous Books. Top-notch stuff. Great piece of work from Adam Davies. You can find out more about Adam and the book at www.anomalousbooks.com slash Davies, D-A-V-I-E-S dot H-T-M-L. And if you want to see more of Adam Davies and some of his expedition stuff, Definitely want to check out those Monster Quest episodes. I watched the Real Hobbit episode that was on recently, and Adam is all over that one. So keep an eye out, punch it in your TiVo or your DVR, and uh, pick up those Monster Quest episodes featuring Adam Davies. And that'll really give you a visual to all the stuff we were talking about here this week on the program. Up next, we told you about it at the beginning. It's time to roll into the added audio bonus my on-site mini-interview with Thunderbird researcher Ken Gerhardt at the Mass Monster Mash. I'm going to hold off on giving you a full preview for this, because it's only about eight minutes long, and if I spent a lot of time giving you the preview, it would take about a quarter of the time that the actual interview is. So, let's just uh, tell you that it's about Thunderbirds, it's about his book, Big Bird, Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters, The Bird vs. Pterodactyl Debate, Photographic Evidence for Giant Birds, and Ken's research into Texas chupacabras from the past few years. Hopefully you'll dig this one because Ken will definitely be back on VOA Audio in the future for a full-length sit-down interview once I've had the chance to sit down and read Big Bird's Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters, which he gave me a copy of at the Mass Monster Mash. So, without any further ado, this little mini-interview was recorded on October 18, 2008, Ken Gerhard at the Mass Monster Mash talking about thunderbirds. What's going on, folks? We're here at the Mass Monster Mash, and I've got Ken Gerhard with me. He's the author of Big Bird: Modern Sightings of Flying Monsters. Uh, Ken, what are you doing up here at the Mass Monster Mash?
2: Well, Tim, um, I heard this was a great event last year, and uh, just got a lot of like excitement and buzz. So, um, and of course, I'm good friends with Nick Redfern and Lauren Coleman, who are both speaking here. So, I wanted to come up and show my support for them, and just. Uh, check out a new event and just be very supportive of these types of events all over the country
0: awesome awesome talk a little bit about your book Big Bird uh, you got me a copy here today so I'll be reading it and you'll be back on the show for a full-length interview and all that good stuff but talk to folks about what the books about so they can check it out in preparation for our interview in the future
2: well first of all I should clarify the name Big Bird of course has no affiliation with Sesame Street <laughs> it's actually a local name that the media coined for some of the large flying creatures that have been reported primarily in South Texas, which is where I live. And for anyone that's interested in cryptozoology, they would probably be familiar with the case of Big Bird, Uh, particularly in the 1970s. In 1976, there were literally dozens of reports of this giant flying creature uh, throughout South Texas, and it made many newspaper headlines and created quite a bit of uh, mass hysteria, if you will. People were seeing it uh, all over the place for a number of weeks. And uh, so I went back and revisited the whole Big Bird saga and found out that there are actually, the reports are continuing, and there's actually people that are still seeing this thing, and I'm contacted on a weekly basis by people in Texas, and uh, of course this ties into the whole Thunderbird uh, legend, which people are familiar with, the Thunderbirds have been reported all over North America. Uh, What's interesting in the case of Big Bird, however, is that a number of the eyewitnesses have actually reported something that looks very much like a prehistoric pterodactyl, or some type of flying reptile, rather than the traditional, you know, giant bird. Uh, that most people envision when they th- think of Thunderbird.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So what, do you have an opinion on that whole thing? Is it a, is it a pterodactyl or is it just a giant bird? or like, what, what's your, Where do you fall on that whole idea?
2: You know, I'm sort of open-minded still because I have a number of eyewitnesses that still have described this as just basically a large, gigantic, black, vulture-looking bird. Yeah. Um, but it could it, be both. It, it could be both. But what's interesting particularly about the, the pterodactyl theory is that uh, uh, fossils were uncovered in 1970s in Texas of a, a giant pterosaur pterodactyl called Quetzalcoatlus, and it was actually the largest flying thing that ever lived on the planet. It had a wingspan of about 40 feet, and these fossils were unearthed in uh, Big Bend Park in West Texas. So um, there's a theory out there that perhaps people were somehow influenced by this discovery, and you know, hence the pterodactyl sightings. But uh, many of the people I've interviewed have drawn sketches and uh, actually included some very distinct uh, physical properties, such as a long snake-like tail with a flange or diamond shape at the end. And this is very indicative of an actual pterosaur called a rampharynchoid uh, that lived millions of years ago. So if it it is a a recollective memory or some type of imaginary memory or, or psychological phenomena, I just find it's very interesting that people have kind of gone another layer or you know gone got another degree if you will on this thing and sort of included those types of characteristics
0: and with this whole technical revolution people have cameras and camera phones and all that good stuff and people everybody has a digital camera now do you find there's more evidence sort of coming forward uh in the photographic realm for that kind of stuff
2: uh still have not obtained any photographic evidence, and there's still some pretty big questions regarding Big Bird. For example, if these things are so huge and they're flying around, why aren't they seen more often? Where do they live? And so forth. So there really is a, a good mystery here. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that there are a lot of remote, uninhabited areas, particularly in Mexico. And if you look at the mountains of Mexico, the Sierra Madres and so forth, there's a number of uh, very remote areas, some of the most unexplored areas in North America. Uh, also, we have to consider that, uh, you know, Obviously, any winged animal is capable of traveling vast distances uh, or possibly migrating. Yeah. So that, you know, that's something that we have to consider as well, as perhaps these creatures aren't native to Texas or North America, but they're migrating from some other remote area. But ultimately, there's not a lot of physical evidence regarding these uh, flying monster sightings, so it is it is a really big mystery.
0: So now you get the book Big Bird. What? Oh, uh, well, you did say the thing about Sesame Street. Have they said anything to you about it, or is it sort of like or you just say that just to clear the air?
2: Um, well, I just kind of I, kinda, I gonna just kind of clear the air because yeah. if most people did do a Google search or any type of search on Big Bird, obviously they're going to come back to the Sesame Street thing. Yeah. And of course, the name Big Bird was actually com- you know something the media came up with when these reports came out, and I guess it was kind of a coined phrase that that, that sort of just stuck. But uh, traditionally, you know, we, we refer to these things as thunderbirds, even the pterodactyl types. And if you look at the whole thunderbird phenomenon, what's interesting is that you have, you know, centuries of legends here in North America. Many native peoples, such as the Navajo and the Cherokee, had these legends about these great winged creatures. And, of course, the name thunderbird refers to the thunderous sound of their wings flapping. Yeah. So, um, you know, and, of course, thunderbird, the word Thunderbird is, is very ingrained in our culture, you know, from a car to a drink to, you know, whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, so it's a very, uh, very popular term. Um, but, you know, I just sort of adopted that name uh, for the purpose of tying it into the original reports and sightings that came out in the 70s so that people understood that there is a history uh, of modern sightings that goes back to the 70s.
0: Now, outside of the Thunderbird, do you, uh, do you do any other crypto research or are you primarily focused on, on the, the Big Bird, Thunderbird stuff?
2: Well, um, other than the, the uh, Big Bird reports, I, of course, did the uh, Chupacabra episode for Monster Quest recently. Uh, people that are familiar with the Chupacabra may know that there are a number of these weird hairless dog-like animals that have been shot or found in Texas over the last few years. Actually, they're starting to pop up all over the place. I know many people that have seen these weird animals. And, you know, I don't think it's a chupacabra in the traditional sense, although can we really say what the chupacabra yeah. is because descriptions vary so much. Most people are familiar with the chupacabra that originated out of Puerto Rico in the mid-'90s. Uh, of course, it was associated with livestock killings, which is what? what's really interesting about the Texas cases is that these animals that have been collected uh, apparently are you know they kill in the most unusual way basically by killing the prey and then sucking or drinking the blood out of the animal without actually eating the meat or destroying the carcass and uh, so in that sense it kind of it does tie into the original chupacabra sightings it's a sort of a, a modern vampire if you will which yeah. is what, what's very interesting about it but um, anatomically speaking all the specimens that I've studied from the Elmendorf bees to the Quero chupacabra uh, they're all obviously canine type animals But they have an unusual skin condition whereby they have no hair on their body whatsoever. Uh, They all have very unusual dentition or teeth, very long fangs, very long claws. And in many cases, their forelimbs have been shorter than their hind limbs. And they run with sort of a strange hopping motion. So, uh, you know, the theory has been put forward that these are basically mangy coyotes or foxes. Uh, but I think we have to go a little bit deeper into the mystery than that. There's obviously something genetic going on here with these animals. It's sort of a mutation or subspecies or something that's that's developing. And, and again, if you go back to the behavior of how they're killing livestock, that's not really typical of a coyote either.
0: Where can people find out more stuff from you? Where can they check out your, your book and uh, your website, all that good stuff?
2: Well, of course, I'm on MySpace, Ken Gerhard, G-E-R-H-A-R-D. I also have a crypto blog site, and it's www.tonezone.tonezone.com/ken, And I post a lot of my reports, pictures, and blogs on there and so forth. You can also watch for me on the show Monster Quest, and I also appear on the show Legend Hunters on the Travel Channel, uh, where I do some Bigfoot research.
0: Awesome, awesome. Hey, Ken, thank you very much for coming on the show and doing this little on-site
2: interview. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Tim. Appreciate it.
0: That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 4. Big, big, super huge thanks to Ken Gerhard for taking some time out of the Mass Monster Mash to talk to me. And I'm looking forward to talking to him in the future for a full-length edition of BOA Audio. Of course, big, big, super huge thanks to Adam Davies author of Extreme Expeditions, Travel Adventures, Stalking the World's Mystery Animals. He's a great guy, and I'm looking forward to talking to him again in the future as well. That little tag he heard in the middle of the program definitely was no lie. I loved this week's guests. I hope you did too, and I can't wait to bring him back on the show to talk about cryptozoology once again. And now, finally, after a two-week absence, it's time for the Season 4 premiere of BOA Audio listener feedback. I'm going to be honest, I picked this week's letter as kind of a smart-ass response to the technical difficulties of this week's episode, and you'll kind of understand what I'm talking about when you hear the letter. It comes from Andy, no hometown listed. After listening to many things on the internet, I would like to thank the technical staff for the quality audio that I have not heard anywhere else. Good sound quality, even with the overseas guests. Great job, fellow engineer, Andy. As you can see, I picked this week's letter as a kind of smart-ass response because we did have somewhat lousy quality on this week's audio. And it was a surprise to get an email like this because I'd say generally the comments run three to one with people writing in with suggestions on how to improve the sound quality. Although I guess, you know, the people who think the sound quality is great, they're not really going to write in. I hate to burst your bubble, though, Annie, but there is no technical staff or engineers on the BOA team. It's just me. I tape the interviews. I edit them. I fix them up. And I'd like to think that we're improving sound quality-wise from season to season and that each year we get a little bit better. One of my long, long-term projects for BOA Audio is to someday go back to the original episodes. I still have the raw files for all the interviews we've ever taped. And I'd like to go back with either a really skilled audio engineer or just applying some of my own learned tricks over the past four years and sort of digitally remaster those original episodes of BOA Audio from three or four years ago. But like I said, that's a long, long long-term project, something that would take forever and a day to really put together. You never know, though. In the future, uh, it's something that may come up from BOA. I suppose I should say, if you think you might be able to help me out with that, shoot me an email, and we could start talking about it and planning it out, because uh, it is quite a massive project. But it is something that I would like to produce eventually. So there you go, Andy. Thank you for the kudos. It really brightened my day when I received this email, because trust me, folks, I am my own worst critic when it comes to the sound quality. I try to go over every episode with a fine-tooth comb, and to hear from someone who appreciates that is a great thing, and... uh, Obviously, I do listen to all the criticisms of the audio quality and take those into account each week when I try to clean up the episodes and put it together for the week. But as I noted, there is no staff and I'm pretty pressed for time. So sometimes we just have to make do with what we have and do our best to get it out to you on time with the highest audio quality that I can muster for that week's show. Always under the deadline. That seems to be the case here at BOA Audio. Anyway, once again, thanks for writing in, Andy. Much appreciated. Keep on listening, and uh, feel free to send me your thoughts and critiques on the audio quality here for Season 4. If you'd like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's three ways to do it. Here they are. Either go to Banal of America and click the Contact button on the left-hand side menu, or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And finally, the third method, the theusav.com, of the official Banal of America forum. I'm happy to report that we've revamped the whole forum now. We've updated it and brought it up to speed with the most current version of PHP forum software. So it is an exciting place to be right now, and the conversations are really picking up. And you can always find that at www.theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com, or click the forum button that's all over Banal of America. Send me your thoughts, send me your questions, send me your comments, send me your critiques. I can take them. Send them all my way, and we'll try and feature them here on BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next, of course, you know them, you love them. They are the infamous and esteemed BOA staff. It's time to doff our cap and give thanks to them for all their help with the website and the audio show. They are as follows, Leslie, Chiron, R. Lee, Joe V., Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, and Richard Thomas from Wales. Week in, week out, great stuff from the BOA staff, columns that you gotta read, I'm telling you folks. They are really enjoyable and enlightening pieces from a veritable think tank of esoterica covering a wide range of topics in the paranormal field. It's become the tagline here for the end of the program. If you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, you're only getting half the story, com. Make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Donation time, donation time. Not only am I stuffy, I'm, I'm singing in an awful way, but it is time, of course, for me to ask you for some donations to Banal of America. You just heard a hour-long plus international phone call to the UK. That stuff costs money, folks. We don't do big advertisements during the program. We don't do advertisements on BOA. And all of our 95-plus episodes of the program are free to download for anybody who wants to check them out. So in other words, we're not really making any money off this program. It's really a community service, I guess you could say, and a hobby of mine. But the phone calls, the bandwidth, the hosting, and the time costs a lot of money out of my pocket that thankfully is subsidized by the great BOA Audio listening audience who make donations. How can you make donations? That's simple. You go to Banal of America, you click the PayPal button, and you make a donation. Simple as that. One, two, three. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA Audio and the website up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. Next week on the program, we're going to get metaphysical on your ass, as our guest is Charles Upton, author of Cracks in the Great Wall, UFOs and Traditional Metaphysics. It's definitely a heady look at UFOs, as we're going to discuss the metaphysical elements of the phenomenon. He's going to detail the field of metaphysics and how it relates to UFOs, what is the hierarchy of being, why he feels that demonic elements may be at work behind UFOs, his problems with time travel and reincarnation, his critiques of Steven Spielberg's work and Dr. John Mack's research, plus Upton's opinion on whether or not God will bail out the human race, and if the powers that be that are doing the devil's handiwork know that they are performing in service to Satan. Yes, my friends, it's a very dark, it's a very spooky, it's a very heady edition of BOA Audio, that goes way off the beaten path and explores the UFO phenomenon from a whole new angle with Charles Upton, author of Cracks in the Great Wall, UFOs, and Traditional Metaphysics. That's next week on BOA Audio, Season 4, Be There or Be Square. And on that note, we wrap it up here for the week. Once again, big thanks to Adam Davies and Ken Gerhardt for coming on the show. Jam-packed episode covering the whole gamut of cryptozoology. Definitely a show that I will put into my best-of pile in the future. I'll be back next week with Charles Upton talking about UFOs and metaphysics. Until then, this is Tim Banal, thanking you for listening and signing off.